0: Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Christian Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University.
1: I'm your co-host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics, also at Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University.
0: Today, we want to talk about a subject that's been really discussed pretty heavily over the last three to five years, but really in the past few weeks, because of an announcement by Joshua Harris, the author of the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, which was a radically popular book in kind of the late 90s, framing what has been called purity culture. turns out that Joshua Harris, who wrote this book at only 21 years old, decided to kind of abandon his teachings in this regard, and also to say he no longer defines himself as a conventional Christian and that he and his wife are divorcing. Many people have come out and said, this is the death of purity culture. And many people, even critics from the outside have said, this is the damage of a Christian sexual ethic. Now, a lot of people have weighed in on this from a number of different perspectives. And this, this podcast is not really going to be focused on the story of Joshua Harris or in particular his book, but really what's been called purity culture and just asking the question, what kind of message of sexual purity, if we even want to use that term, do we want to teach from the church and and from parents really focused on the next generation? Now, this term purity culture is actually somewhat ambiguous, and I don't know that anybody really knows what it means. But essentially, you go to the maybe late 90s into the 2000s. It was a very intentional movement, and you had campaigns like, say, the Silver Ring Thing or Why True Love Waits. And again, the book by Joshua Harris, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, essentially trying to help young people save sex for marriage and avoid this encroaching non-biblical sexual ethic that seemed to be coming closer and closer to home, really with, in many ways, also with the growth of the internet to this young generation. Now, that's kind of what's meant by purity culture. It included things like purity rings, uh, people signing purity pledges, huge rallies, music, curriculum, on and on. So that's kind of briefly what we mean by purity culture. Now, my kind of experience with this, so to speak, Then I'm turning over to you, Scott, to share your perspective, is I grew up actually kind of with a father who in the 80s did what was called the Why Wait campaign, which really was the first time publicly that the church addressed some of the ideas coming from the sexual revolution in the 60s and the 70s. So that was kind of through the 80s into the early 90s and mid-90s. And then the late 90s, you have movements like Why True Love Waits that kind of took the baton, so to speak, in a similar but also different direction. So I was like coming to age, so to speak, in high school and college while this purity culture is really hitting. Now, you have a little bit of a different perspective.
1: Yeah, I I came to faith quite a bit younger than you did uh, in the 70s, Sort of in the in the aftermath of the, the sexual revolution in the sixties, and I started high school in the late sixties mm. when the the sexual revolution was in in full bloom, uh, and so there was a there was a lot of discussion about how to how to be faithful while at the same time dealing with the, this you know this sort of flood of sexual freedom that was now coming sort of you know in large part for the first time. In culture, because we, you know, mm. we were no longer in the Aussie and Harriet culture of the nineteen right, fifties. Right. You know, it was no longer leave it to Beaver. Uh, b- but you know, when, sort of coming out of the sixties, uh, and it, you know, basically growing up during the sixties, you were just we were bombarded mm. with the idea of you know th- the only way to really be yourself and to be authentic and to express yourself was to sort of give yourself to, I think maybe the best phrase would be to almost to sexual hedonism wow uh, and there were I mean people people there was this huge celebration that the the limits of this puritanical sexual ethic as it was described were now being lifted and you could be who you were so the the contrast between a a Christian sexual ethic which was still fairly strong I mean I you know the the late 70s, early 80s with, you know, when your dad sort of, you know, started with the Why Wait campaign, uh, you know, that was, I think, directly in response to what we saw right. as the sexual revolution. Uh, you know, as I remember the covers, the early 1980s when Time Magazine basically had a had a comment that says, you know, the sexual revolution is over. You wow. know nineteen eighty Like the battle had been won. Wow. Uh, and it was done. Uh, and there was no longer any discussion about it. In Christian circles, that wasn't quite the case because the Christian sexual ethic that I grew up with was still pretty strong. And mm. there was, a, as as you mentioned, with all the things that surrounded the Why Wait campaign the, and the purity culture, there was a lot of Christian cultural support for the purity culture, mm. and it needed it at the time. Uh, now, the difference was we didn't have the the visual images that were so readily available at the you know at the at the touch of a place on your smartphone or the click of a mouse. Right. So that's the part that yes. is, is totally different. Uh, in many ways pornography has
0: changed everything. Now let let's come back to that. But how old were you again, Remind when you became a believer? Sixteen. You were sixteen years old, and this was roughly what year? I'm sorry to put you on the spot, but give Nine. us some context. Was what decade was this? Was uh, you said ni- the- 1970 1970s. Okay. So, what was kind of the message coming from the church about sexual purity that you recall in the 1970s? Yeah.
1: Well, it was. I think that what was so what was so different about it today than today is that most of the most of the people who embodied the sexual revolution were so countercultural in a whole lot of other different ways. I mean, it was the hippie generation yeah. I mean, and, you know, it's when Woodstock came mm-hmm. of age uh, and it was, you know, it was the, the music sort of really radically changed and it was a dr- it was associated with a drug culture that was coming on the scene for the first time. So it wasn't, you know, purity. I mean, I can put this sexual promiscuity was associated with all sorts of other things. Gotcha. That that the culture at large, I think, correctly had really significant problems with, Mm. and so it was not. it, It was. It wasn't isolated on its own apart from all these other cultural things that—what I I would call cultural baggage that went along with it from the 1960s. Now, this Um, this is a really important distinction because today we're told that a biblical
0: sexual ethic is actually damaging to certain people, and it harms you if you think you shouldn't have sex outside of a marriage context— you say you go back to the seventies and at least cultural speaking, it was kind of the opposite, at least on the surface that people believed. And sexual promiscuity was more associated with things like rebellion and alcoholism and drugs that itself was dangerous. Is that a fair I think that's right.
1: Um, and I think you know, we we still didn't know a whole lot about sexually transmitted diseases. This was before mm. the before the advent of AIDS. Uh, So we didn't know anything about that, Uh, and so, but it was just it was associated with all these other things that it it made it it made it a little bit easier for for the average young Christian to reject the sexual promiscuity Mm -hmm. because you were you were also rejecting all the other stuff that came along with it. So, if you rejected
0: this in the seventies, you were a part of the mainstream. Now, if you reject the wider That's culture, good. it's the opposite. Exactly. You are a revolutionary, right?
1: Right. What a radical change it's that has been is. a very yeah a very big change. Although I, re, I you know I remember as, as a pastor in the you know mid mid to late nineteen eighties, uh, you know before I came to teach at Talbot, I remember my you know my wife and I doing premarital counseling. For example, I, I pastored the singles, uh, and we talked a lot about you know a biblical sexuality. Um, but I remember doing premarital counseling, and and we were sort of assigned. We sort of drew, we drew lots for who covered what, and my wife and I got we drew the straw that dealt <laughs> that dealt with this, the talk about sex and sexuality and okay. wa- and waiting. And I remember even even as late as you know as late as the, you know the mid eighties, uh, we we were get we would almost get laughed at by couples that we were counseling. Wow, when we were encouraging them to wait, particularly if they had been married before, and this was a second marriage, they just looked at us like, "You can't possibly be serious about this." Is this. 80s. This, is this, not- is the, this is the eighties. This is not. This is the mid to late eighties. Yeah, uh, and so that's why I think the, the you know the idea that the the sexual revolution, you know, once it sort of shed the the hippie culture, mm-hmm. which it did in the eighties. Uh, and and going forward, then it you know people evaluated it more in terms of this is a no harm no foul thing, mm. uh, and so the da- we really didn't begin to see the damage until we had you know twenty to thirty years of data, and all sorts of anecdotal evidence that we've had come to the fore, because there are all, there are all sorts of victims of the sexual revolution right. that have been coming forward in the last. Ten to fifteen years. Mm-hmm. Our, you know, our friend that we've had on on our podcast before, Jennifer Morse, yep, who's head of the, the organization called the Ruth Institute. She has, you know, lots and lots of documentation of these stories and lots of empirical evidence about the damage that's been produced by people engaging in sexual relationship with with partners that they couldn't trust or didn't know. Uh, you know, all I mean the the plethora of sexually transmitted diseases. That take place, most of which, uh, in in my view, disproportionately affect women uh, more so than men. For, you know, for example, one of the side effects of almost every sexually transmitted disease for women is a, a, a an impact on their fertility. Yeah, which is not the case for men. Uh, and so, the, the, at least the impact of that seems to be disproportionate for women. Um, now, growing up in the
0: eighties, I. We'd have a lot of conversations with my dad about this because he was researching and talking and thinking about it. One of the things he told me is he goes, when I started speaking on like maximum sex, that was the title of it, on college campuses in the 70s and 80s, it was like radical on the university campus to hear something pushing back against the sexual revolution, saying there's reasons to wait, God designed sex for a purpose, and there's consequences if you don't live this way. God's design really gives us love, so to speak, the best love. Well, one of the things he said is so many people in the church just didn't even want to talk about this. They wouldn't address it, and he's an outsider getting more criticism from within the church than from outside. Is your is your assessment that a lot of people really just resisted even talking about this, and probably talked about it
1: too late? Is that fair? Would you agree with that? Well, I think in the in in the in the seventies, you know, the there were so many other things you know, pushing back against Christian faith, mm. and this was just one of them and so it was easy to include this as as in one of the things that christian faith was pushing back against to get all kinds of cultural trends in the 80s and 90s i think it's a little bit different because once you know once we had the, the rise of the religious right and it got more politically involved it became and for a while it became culturally cool to be christian um, oh, you know, gotcha. while, while at the same, while at the same time, I mean, it's always been countercultural, but it was not in the 80s and 90s. It was not as countercultural to be Christian as it is today. I Man, there feel was like, the Reagan Revolution that yeah, was associated that. with yeah. Christianity, and you know, and there was a, I mean, a lot of public pushback against abortion, for example, mm. uh, that was led by by Ronald Reagan, for example. Yeah. I mean his book on abortion and the conscience of the nation. Yeah. You know, when I mean can you envision envision a president today <laughs> writing a book that says what that said about abortion? I mean, that's right. unthinkable today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, I think in, in in that era uh it was a little easier I think to to I think to to maintain that sexual ethic. Um and then I think some, some I think you know a big part of the Promise Keepers movement, yeah, had to do right. with you know with fidelity in marriage yep. and encouraging encouraging young men to be men and to wait until marriage. I think that was a bit. I mean, the Promise Keepers was a big it was deal. Huge. It was enormous.
0: So it sounds like um, some of the sixties and seventies really started to hit home, and there was a recognition that we've got a problem here. And the moral majority made it permissible to start to, to, to talk, talk about, about this. Now,
1: what that corresponded with was the, the onset of AIDS mm. in the early 1980s and yep. some very some, – in my view, some yep. very unhelpful ways of talking about sexual purity uh, because what we said uh, unspeakable things about AIDS victims. Mm. That you know, I remember churches saying that AIDS victims were. This was God's judgment on the homosexual community. Just the damage that that did was is incalculable (sighs) today. Mm. And I don't ever recall seeing anybody representing the cause of Christ in some of those early AIDS marches. You know, Mm. where where were we when the victims of AIDS needed Christian compassion? You know, when, when we, we, we didn't have medical solution. I mean, AIDS was a death sentence mm. when, it, when it started in the early 1980s. I remember hearing about it as a kid, and it was like, do you
0: get bit by a mosquito, you might get AIDS. Of course you don't, but there were these kinds of fears yeah. going around.
1: Um, so there, there were a lot of unhelpful ways that we talked about sex. So let's
0: anyways. talk about this a little bit. There's unhelpful ways we probably engaged our neighbors— such as, like you said, choosing the AIDS virus as some kind of judgment from God and ignoring other calamities in the church. It was a very selective, unhelpful, ungracious way to love people who are genuinely hurting. And, of course, ignores the fact that you know there were victims of all ages, all places, for all reasons. It's never as simplistic as people painted it. What do you think are some other unhelpful ways— that maybe we approach the narrative in the church of dealing with kind of the sexual revolution?
1: Well, that's a great question. I think, you know, we, we sometimes take a strictly utilitarian approach to this, mm. and we, we inadvertently lose our principles, and we, all, we, all, we only highlight the consequences. Now, those consequences are real, yeah. And they're important, and we shouldn't put our heads in the sand and admit they don't exist. And I think the longer term consequences especially matter a lot. But I think we become we become I think c- culturally complicit if we just talk about that utilitarian framework. Mm. Um, I think another way is I and I think we've done this in the church. We have oversold marriage. Oh, I mean, I think the culture mm. oversells sex. Yep. The church oversells marriage. And I think the culture today, this is what our friend Jennifer Morris has pointed out so insightfully, is our culture today uses sex as one of the main rites of passage into adulthood. And because the church can't do that outside the context of marriage, we use marriage today and and it functions, I think, in largely the same way, Mm. is that we encourage marriage as that same rite of passage by sort of giving giving. Theological permission for people in their twenties to have sex, mm. um, and so we—I think we use it in, lar- in largely the same way. Um, the, the idea that that marriage is this panacea, right, is <laughs> you know is such a pipe dream. You know, mm. and I remember, you know, I, I pastored to singles for the, in the church for a while, and we had all sorts of stereotypes we had to overcome. You know, the idea that single people had sort of cornered the market on emotional hangups was total was clearly false cuz I know I know so many messed up married people who stay that way because their spouse enables them to do so. Right. You know nobody ever talks about that. And on the flip side very healthy singles. Exactly, <laughs> right? Well, and I and we've talked about this on the show before that I think if we have any shot at connecting a me- meaning meaningful faithfulness to Christ with people who struggle with same-sex attraction mm. we have got to reframe how we think about singleness you know christina hitchcock talked about yeah, this a wonderful think, in interview. great kingdom terms on this but i think i think we have downplayed singleness we've assumed too much about some of the some of the things that quote cause singleness um, and we I think we have definitely oversold marriage. I mean we we come into marriage thinking it's sort of you know you have sex whenever you want right uh you know you, you sort of glory in the conflicts you have because they bring you they quote co- bring you closer together uh you know nobody talks about we we never hear from couples who have really struggled not only for a, a period in their but maybe throughout the course of their marriage you know I've had couples who have told me you know we have you know, we have a we have an okay marriage with occasional good days, right? That's a realistic. Where, where do we hear? Where do we hear from them?
0: You know what's interesting as you say this, Scott? Is I I've been reading a book this week called "Making Chastity Sexy: The Rhetoric of Evangelical Abstinence Campaigns," written by a professor at the time from Wheaton, Christine Gardner, and she says we almost take this fairy tale perspective to marriage that there's a prince save the princess rescue from the dragon, which is the sexual revolution, finally get married, and it's happily ever after. And then sex and the relationship is not how people expected it to be, and so they have conflict, which in many cases could be very normal conflict in a marriage, but they don't expect it, and they're not ready for it. So then they end up abandoning their marriage, and in some cases, abandoning their faith. So the point that she makes is sometimes in this purity culture, we adopt the means of the culture. Rather than saying, "Okay, scripturally speaking," let's start there, and I think that's somewhat of of, of the failure of how we've approached the sexual uh, sexual period. I think,
1: yeah, I mean, today, you know, abstinence is one of the least sexiest things you can have <laughs> right? because I mean, if you, I mean, if you tell the average person that you are waiting till marriage, they're look at, they'll look at you and think you've lost your mind, mm. um, and they I, although I think I think we need to be clear about what the benefits are. Of doing that because I think it does. I mean, it, build, it builds trust. Mm-hmm. It, it builds it builds the relational side. of some points your dad made years ago, you know that you know your your primary sex organ is your brain. That's mm-hmm. it's it's the relationship that you have, and so abstaining now builds, you know, builds the kind of trust and relationship that you need for great sex later on. And most sexual dysfunction, though there are some physical dysfunctions, but most sexual dysfunction is relational, not physical. Mm, we've known I, that we've known that for a, a long for it. a long time,
0: uh, and that's because sex is not just a physical uh, physical experience. It's spiritual. It's relational. It's emotional. It's a holistic experience. It can't just be reduced to physical. Now, now, your point, uh, One of the tensions I often wonder is some of the critique of purity culture has been that everything sex is used to sell everything in our culture from cars <laughs> to burgers to new shoes and part of the purity culture is like no 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 we've got the corner on sex come to the christian fold and it's actually even better so kids chanting chanting at rally sex is <clears throat> great sex is great but wait for god's standard and Part of the goodness of that is saying, yes, sex is beautiful. So many people have thought sex is bad and it's ugly and it's wrong. And we need to say, no, sex is actually good and it's beautiful. It's not something to be ashamed of. But we flip around and use the cultural script. Yeah. And it's like, wait a minute. We need to highlight the benefits of waiting and experiencing the life giving sex that God designs to have. But when we use the culture script and we set up this formula, it's almost like we are setting up many young people for failure and
1: frustration. I think that's a, it's a great observation. And if you think about it, you know, the, the, av- the average couple, when, when they get married, assuming that they've not been you know, hugely sexually active before marriage, but it takes the average couple, once they start having sex, about 9 to 12 months— before they actually really start to feel like they're in sync, wow sexually,
0: let me stop. Why do you think that is?
1: Well, I is it- think in part because it just it just takes that long to get to know a pre- now that's not to say mm. that the plumbing's not going to work, and sure you, won't, sure you won't have the experience, but I think to experience well let's put it this way uh, it's not uncommon okay for a couple's wedding night to be a major disappointment mm. And you think about it, it makes total sense why that would be the case. Yeah. Because you're you're totally stressed out. You know, you're exhausted. You're totally <laughs> exhausted. You know, most, I mean, if you're really honest, most couples after their wedding reception, they say I just want to go to sleep like for the next <laughs> 2 days. Um so it's not, un- it's not uncommon that there's all sorts of adjustments that you have to make to each sure. other before you're in sync sexually, like you are in any other component of a relationship. But I think what we do is by somehow the way we can—I'm not exactly sure how we do this. I think we can kick that around a bit. Okay. But I think we do set people up for disappointment because we assume that if we wait for, if we wait according to God's standards— that once we once we get married and are behind closed doors, that it's, you know, fireworks on the 4th of July, just by virtue of two people showing up, and it just sort of happens like spontaneous combustion does, which is simply not true. Uh, it takes a period of adjustment before that works. That, that's really important to keep in mind. I think the the other thing I think that's important too, and this is, you know, anybody who's married for a while, you know, can tell you this, but... You know, you you're going to have times in your life where, you know, the the ready availability of sexual relations is just not going to be there. So this I is mean, wife is pregnant. She's pregnant, somebody's sick, you're on a deployment, yeah. you're just going
0: through an emotional difficult period, you're busy, etc. Yeah, I mean, we had,
1: you know, anybody who's raised small kids knows, you know. I mean, life, com- life. You're sort of two steps from life coming unraveled at any moment, uh, and you know, most couples when they got young kids at home, they're happy to get through the day and collapse in a heap into bed at night and go to sleep. Right. And then you know, you think about, you know, the impact of menopause for a woman on sexual relations. Often has pretty significant ramifications. Uh, on how they're able to enjoy sexual relations. So there's, you know, the idea that you're just going to right off into the sunset for great sex forever is not true for anybody, (laughs) regardless of of your worldview on the subject.
0: That that gives such a a deep tension, and I don't know exactly how to resolve this because I want young people to know God has designed sex for a purpose— And when we live according to his design, it is the most life-giving. But on the flip side, we have inherited original sin. Many people have experienced sexual abuse. We have insecurities, and it's just not that simple. So helping young people say God's design is for a purpose. Like Deuteronomy 10 says, God has given us these commandments for our own good, But on the flip side, that doesn't mean necessarily people who aren't following the biblical script, aren't having good relationships, good marriage, or good sex. I got an email from a a lady this week, and my my heart just went out to her. And she said, I don't remember how long it was, but a couple decades, she had been in a lesbian relationship. And she writes, she says, I felt loved. I felt cared for. It was wonderful. She said, but I've really come to grips that I want to follow the Lord moving forward. What does it mean to be single? Am I destined to have difficulty now if I'm not attracted to a guy? And I thought, gosh, if our whole script is just follow the biblical pattern of marriage and this makes you sexually fulfilled and happy, what do I say to her? It's just, it's a
1: lot more complicated than that. Mm. Um, and I think part of it, then, this is a cultural thing too, that I think there's no doubt that the culture has oversold sex. Mm. Because I mean, think about in the movies, on television, every time a couple's behind closed doors, you you are assuming. Now it's not even closed doors. If, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, there's less left to the imagination. Of but it's just the assumption is that any time that happens, it's just this off the charts awesome experience. Mm. Um, when in reality, you know that that's true. That's true a lot of the time. Mm. But that's not that's not everybody's that's not a universal experience. Right. Um, and let me be clear about this. I love my wife. Sure. And we're doing great. So I'm not I'm not projecting anything. Right, 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 right. Yeah. But I think this is just I mean, but we just you know, we know, for example, you you mentioned the you know, a woman who's been sexually abused. You know, I mean, she she's happy to actually to wait for sex in a lot in lots of cases either that or she does just the opposite of uh, and is, and becomes even more mm. sexually involved in order right. to compensate right. for that but but you know it's just unrealistic to expect that if i if i am if i am marrying a woman who has sexual abuse in her past or you bring this to the marriage or yeah, both of you well, yeah that we're just you know we're going to get behind closed doors mm. and it's all going to be great that's just not that's just not true
0: i mean my dad was sexually abused from six to thirteen. We're talking oh. in the like forties and fifties, and he's experienced healing and transformation from this, and has had a wonderful, you know, sex and love relationship with my mom. But he still talks about just memories and pain that stays with him today. This was often left out of the piece of I think some of the purity culture, these difficult dynamics. Now you said something earlier about how the sex revolution has made how it's approached sex and the question, is it a big deal? And there's kind of a tension in the sexual revolution. They're saying it is a big deal. This is fulfillment and it's fun. We have to be able to have sex. But on the flip side, it's also been saying it's not a big deal. Like it's just like having a glass of water. It's just a physical process. Get rid of the stigma, get rid of the, uh, Certainly you can get rid of pregnancy that comes from it with the condom and abortion and other kinds of acts, but it's not sacred. It's just a physical act. So in the church, one of our responses is to say, yes, it's a big deal, but we have to follow the biblical pattern of sex. And part of my tension is it is a big deal in the sense that we have a Me Too movement, not a people physically abused, as painful as that is. But somebody who's sexually abused, that gets at the heart and, and it creates a different kind of hurt and a pain. And scripture scriptural talks about, you know, sexual immorality is the one sin you commit against your own body. Life comes from sexual activity it is a big deal, but it's not the biggest deal. I mean, Billy Graham said years ago, he said, it's idolatry. That's the worst sin. So I think the church in some ways has responded by saying, Oh no, it's a big deal. It's a huge deal. And maybe said it's the biggest deal too much and not brought a bigger balance. So I've seen parents with their kids are like, I don't really care if my son is greedy and if he's selfish, but as long as he's sexually pure, I've succeeded as a parent. I think something's gone wrong with the message here. So is sex a big deal or not? How do we f- strike this right balance within the church?
1: Well, I think we've t- we've taken our cues from the culture on this. Mm. And I think, Sean, you're right to point out the um, the ambivalence of the culture. And I say to the culture, sort of make up your mind. Mm. Either it's a big deal or it's not. Mm. And I think we're probably gravitating more toward the fact that it's not huh. uh, today. Uh, it's just in the culture at large because it's just with the with how ubiquitous pornography is today, that's true. You, you just can't. I mean, it's just impossible. It's almost impossible to get away from it. Um, and it's just. And I think the the way young girls, for example, this is some of the the big harm in my view. The way young girls are being hypersexualized today in fashion yep. and in advertising. In fact, we are we're really losing the category of preteen. Um, mm. some, of my, some of our colleagues in, in other parts of the world where some of this advertising is even worse are pointing out that we're losing that pre-adolescent period where you either have youth, not toddlers, youth, and then you have full-on adolescence. Right. Um, and that, that adolescent period is, is coming earlier and earlier. That seems to be one, mm. of, one of the major harms of the of the hypersexualization of young girls. I would put it, I think, like this. I think our culture wants to tell us that sex is the main course, Mm. and I think sex is the dessert, (laughs) okay, not the main course. Sure, and I think to mistake it for the main course is like a person that fills up on dessert, okay, and pretty soon you're going to get sick, Mm. and pretty soon you're going to realize that it's not designed that way. and so I think to make it to make it the main thing in a marriage, I think is is clearly I think getting we just, we just we, we've taken our eye off the ball. It's just not sustainable practically, well, not. let alone biblically what marriage is for. And you know I mean I think if and I think the other thing I think if we recognize that marriage is is sort of fundamentally the union of two miserable, wretched, totally <laughs> depraved, <laughs> self-centered sinners. Right, who are who have decided to to jump on a train and travel together, you know, rather than being a destination. Mm. It's 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 decided. I've got a traveling partner now. And but, could it be that some
0: of the some of the purity culture has maybe overemphasized this experience in marriage of having great sex, which seems to be about what I get out of this marriage. Oh, well put. And there's nothing wrong with having great sex, so to speak. I think God wants us to. He designed it. I mean, read Proverbs 5 and Song of Solomon. But when marriage becomes primarily about that, as opposed to a way of incarnating God's love for the church and showing faithfulness to a broken culture and raising kids in the ways of the Lord— that's the main course, so to speak, and we've kind of lost that.
1: Well, and that's why I think it's it's okay. I think to say that sex is a big deal mm. because Paul says it's a big deal because marriage reflects our, the relationship between Christ and the church. Mm. So I think that makes that makes all the components of marriage a big deal, mm. and why it's important to stand for marriage as God designed it today. Earlier, you made a comment, Scott, about how we approach. Uh,
0: sexuality from a utilitarian perspective that we take cues from our culture. I wrote a blog some time ago, and I just asked the question, culturally speaking, what if everybody followed the sexuality that Jesus taught? Would this help our culture or would it hurt our culture? And I came up with a bunch of bullet points. I won't read all of them, but there'd be no sexual exploitation, sexual trafficking or sex abuse. There'd be no victims of pornography. There wouldn't even be pornography. There'd be no sexually transmitted infections. There'd be no rape, no unwanted pregnancies. There'd be no crude, degrading sexual humor. There'd be no debate about uh, abortion at all. There'd be no pain from divorce, no deadbeat dads, no prostitution, men leaving their wives for younger women. I mean, on and on. I'm just, I'm not even hitting the subject. Now, part of the narrative I think we want to tell is that biblical sexuality is not only true, it's not only good, but it's beautiful by looking at the consequences. But we're not setting up a utilitarian calculus within itself. It seems to me the consequences show that God has designed the world to function a certain way. And sexuality is just as objective as gravity. And when we align our lives according to that, you see the benefit of human beings and families because of it. So, how do we frame this without overselling the utilitarian point? Well, I'd say the way the ethics guy would put it would be, that, which is you, right? Which, you're the ethics guy. Well, I mean,
1: <laughs> okay, you're you're, you're, not, else. you're not off the hook though. <laughs> um, but the, I think the way I'd put it is that our our principles, God, the way God designed it, is that our principles match the consequences that they produce. Mm. Now, that that's not always the case, because there there's something in, in the short term. Sometimes it's different, but in the in the long run, I think adhering to the print the the principles and virtues that God designed. Uh, is what gives us the best set of consequences in the long term. And your exercise, I think, is a, is a really good example of that. I think the way we're framing this is helpful because sometimes
0: purity culture can be all about my experience and myself. And we're saying, no, let's look outside ourselves at the world in which we live. And God designed sexuality for a reason. And it does actually benefit our neighbors and it's for their objective good.
1: And and wouldn't we rather live in a culture where the Me Too movement is not necessary, mm. and that we we don't have to have, you know, organizations combating sex trafficking, uh, and on and on and on.
0: I think everybody could could I, agree on that. You know, as we look back at what was called the purity culture in the '90s, there are some rightful criticisms about it being formulaic overplaying marriage, like you said, not talking about singleness, not even talking about issues on the LGBTQ uh, spectrum in which many kids who wrestled with that felt like, do I not belong here and how does this apply to me? So there's some very fair criticisms that have been raised of this. But I also think we got to look back and not throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. And also, I don't sense any charity by so many critics looking back on the church's response to this. And I'm not saying all of it was good. What you talked about categorizing the AIDS epidemic is judgment from God. I don't have any charity for that. But I also see a lot of well-meaning people who just didn't know everything we know now. Good intentions. Some of it helped and some of it didn't help. So I want to look back on this with some charity, and one of the good things about purity culture is it just brought to the surface, let's talk about sexuality. Crucial. Let's talk about it. I had a young man, I'll never forget, he was probably in his 20s, I was speaking at a Worldview conference, he came up to me and he told me his dad was a pastor, but never once talked with him about sex. And he said, as a result of it, I had to figure this out myself, Googling stuff and looking it up online, asking my friends. He goes, if my dad had just talked with me about this, at least I would have had some perspective. But by not talking about it, it sent a message that this yeah. is shameful or irrelevant or figured out yourself. So this is one of the positives that's come from this. Yeah, we can't I, miss amidst that's the a, criticism. That's a,
1: that's a great point. Um, and I, you know, imagine a person who walks into one of our churches, totally unfamiliar with the Bible, say, say completely unfamiliar with the Ten Commandments, doesn't know that there's such a thing that says, thou shalt not commit adultery, mm. and walks into one of our churches, how long do you think they would come and attend a church before they would hear something that would say something about sexual immorality? Mm. I suspect you could probably go a pretty long time. Huh. Okay, without, without ever hearing anything. Mm. And, you know, I, although I think it probably takes a, it would take a little bit of naivete, I think, to to think that, well, this church probably thinks that promiscuity is okay. Sure, I don't sure. think they're going to say that. But <laughs> sure. I think for somebody, you know, for an increasingly biblically illiterate, you know, culture that we have today, you know, I, I don't think we can assume that everybody who walks into our churches knows what a biblical sexual ethic involves. That's a huge difference from what you talked about totally different. decades ago. And what they
0: do know is probably a stereotype in a sense. God had a bunch of rules. He thinks yeah. sex is bad. He, I mean, there's a bunch yeah. of just—
1: you know, God instituted sex as a result of the fall. Oh, gosh. And you think, well, you know, maybe you need to go back to Genesis 1 and 2— and that the become one, becoming one flesh is before Genesis 3, not after. So um, as we kind
0: of start to wrap some of this up, one, one of the messages that came out of purity culture was, don't have sex outside of marriage. If you wait, you'll have great sex because God designed it for a purpose and you'll avoid consequences. There's some truth in that, but it's certainly not the whole picture and not the sexual ethic as a whole we want to teach to the next generation part of my question is what should that ethic be and as i look at it i i don't want to lose the fact that god has designed this for a purpose sex is good it's beautiful it matters without making it too big of a deal and god's design is to protect us and provide for us but there's also the sense where you know in in leviticus in the scripture god says be holy because I am holy. It's not because of what you get out of it. It's because you've been bought with a price and because our bodies matter, not just what we do with our minds, but what we do with our bodies is a way we worship God. So it's almost like we have to flip the script and say, you know what, sexual abstinence or purity, whatever word we want to use, and both those have some baggage. It's ultimately not about you. It's you're a part of something bigger than yourself, right. and this is how you worship God. And as a result, when we do this, we tend to experience some blessing as a result of it. Would you agree with that? Would you I, add I, anything? I
1: would. I'd add one part. I think that's particularly well said, um, but I add one component, and I would I would make sure that we in, we include sexuality within the broader heading of marriage. And that ultimately, marriage mm. marriage matters because it's a reflection of God's relationship to each one of us. That's great. And and we see sexuality framed within that. And on top of that, if I could throw in, without overselling marriage,
0: correct, reminding people First Corinthians seven, Matthew nineteen, that marriage and singleness are equal ways to love and honor the Lord, to follow the Lord, and the Bible says. They don't know us by our marriage, but by our love. That's right. Well, this has been a great conversation, Scott. Yeah. Thanks for bringing your perspective. I think when these issues hit culture and everybody piles in, sometimes people want to completely throw out a biblical sexual ethic, and I think that's too fast. On the other hand, sometimes people want to go, well, let's defend everything the church has done. I say, well, let's have some charity to those who've come before us, try to put ourselves in their position, but not withhold Rightful criticism where criticism is due, and I think that's what you and I, looking forward, would hope that people would do certainly, for us certainly on the cringe-worthy things that maybe we've said over the years. Maybe I should just speak for myself. No, I've I've contributed to those too. So, well, know. this this is just this has been yeah. a great conversation. Yeah. Thanks, no, thanks for your really insights. Helpful.
1: Great and great, you know, great insights, great questions to raise. Yeah, and I hope I hope our listeners will take this as an encouragement, mm. not only to uphold a biblical sexual ethic, but to not put our heads in the sand and pretend that these issues don't exist. Mm. They need to be up, up, exposed to the light, on the table for discussion. Uh, and we don't need to be shying away from that, particularly in a culture like ours today. Amen. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations
0: on faith and culture. To learn more about us, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please consider giving us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks for taking the time to listen. And remember, think biblically about
1: everything.